Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Critically important GOP primary 
Wisconsin, Nebraska, Oregon, the very critical people who ran those campaigns, stories never told of my client, Ronald The second major theme, and I'll only briefly, is that Ronald Reagan's main political foe in the 1960s of all people was Bobby Kennedy. And rightfully, you could say, what possibly could Bobby Kennedy, the senator of New York after he was attorney general, have to do with Reagan? Well, get my book and you'll learn all about that. But we're going to talk about the other main theme, the most important to history uh, from my work, and that is Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan. My research consisted of being the first person to go through the Eisenhower Presidential Library in Abilene, Kansas, Reagan files consisting of letters between the two, memos, telegrams, uh, and they had four personal meetings that I'll get into detail. I also interviewed those 35 Reagan 1968 campaign staff whose stories have never been told. But then it was at the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley in California where I listened to audio tapes. Basically, Ronald Reagan, when he was a new governor, started his first presidential press there. What he did is every weekend that was free, and he didn't have gubernatorial meetings, he left Sacramento. He crisscrossed the nation, targeting specific places to set up campaign staff, such as from Wisconsin, Nebraska, Oregon, and the nation's capital. Uh, and besides meeting, he gave a standard speech, how he was downsizing government in Sacramento. When he wanted to find <coughs> the downsizing of government and increased individual freedom, from not just California, but to the nation as a whole. And those were all recorded. But it was at his press conferences that the public has never listened to before, no prior experience, is that Ronald Reagan in the 1960s is talking a lot about world affairs and how Dwight Eisenhower influenced him. And that was the key to these findings. I also was one of the first historians ever to see Eisenhower's post-presidential diary in the 1960s. And you're going to have a really special treat tonight the voice you know so well, President Reagan in the 80s, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, you're going to hear him now, brand new, discussing all the hot button topics of the 1960s, mainly Vietnam, but a lot more. Well, they began their interaction together during World War II. Dwight Eisenhower is the commander of Allied forces in London, planning D-Day, and Ronald Reagan is making films as an Army Air Corps officer. And they cut a record. Uh, they were asked to contribute their time because of U.S. war bond loans. During the war, the public was asked to buy war bonds to support the war effort. And they cut this record called Let's All Back in the <laughs> They did not meet in person, uh, but that's their first true interaction. Well, after World War II, we skipped to the early 50s, the time of the Korean War. Ronald Reagan, who's a Democrat, he's been a Democrat there for a long time. He's very unhappy with Harry Truman's handling the Korean War and the very slow buildup of troops. He's also very unhappy with the continued growth in the massive federal bureaucracy begun under FDR and continued by Harry Truman. And Reagan looks around and who is a good person to support the 1952 presidency? He says it's Dwight Eisenhower. That was a point in time when nobody knew Ike's politics and when Eisenhower tells the public he's a Republican. Instead of turning against him because Reagan's a Democrat, Reagan says, you know, if I thought he was the best man for the job when I thought Ike was a Democrat, but now it, as Ike's a Republican, I'm going to support him. And he became a Democrat for life. Well, Eisenhower, during that campaign, famously said, he will reassess what's going on in Korea. I will go to Korea. And when he assumes office in 1953, 
assessed America's military strategy and tactics, and by threatening to use atomic weapons behind the scenes to stop the fighting in Korea. There were other reasons too, the death of Stalin and other things, but that was a major, major factor. The next year, White Eisenhower gave an all but forgotten uh, to history uh, speech called Atoms for Peace. He delivered it to the UN, and in it he offered to turn over America's nuclear arsenal to an international agency. However, there was one caveat. The Soviet Union had to agree. They refused, and that was the end of that. You may also recall the terms, a term for their islands, Komoi and Matsu. Those are offshore islands of what was called Formosa then by Juan Domain. And twice during the decade of the 1950s, communist Red China shelled those islands, threatening an invasion. And President Eisenhower had the Seventh Fleet there and said, well, they'll have to crawl over the Seventh. Actor Ronald Reagan, who was president of the Screen Actors Guild also, made an all but forgotten film, and go to YouTube, try to find it and watch it. It's in the mid-50s, early 50s, excuse me, called Prisoner of War. Actor Reagan portrays an army war captain who was sent, parachuted into North Korea because of all these rumors of terrible atrocities being committed against American POWs who North Korea had captured during the Korean he finds it's even worse than those rumors, tortures, beatings, starvation. In the film, his character escapes, but after the film was completed, actor Reagan told the press that all the incidents were based upon actual army testimony. By 1962, Ronald Reagan switches parties and becomes a Republican officially. And this is two years after John F. Kennedy defeats Richard Nixon in the presidency, and it's the year when Nixon stays on in politics and is running for the governor of California, which he will lose to Pat Brown, the father of today's Jerry Brown. And also in that same year, uh, President, former President Eisenhower, now two years out of office, decides he wants to keep his hands in the Republican Party. He doesn't like how the GOP has been marketing itself. He feels that the Democrats have always done a much better job. And at his summer home in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, he hosts a meeting of top GOP uh, folks to come up with a marketing plan. And what I found in the Eisenhower Library archives is that his hands-on approach has never been known before to history. Specifically, there's a script that I'll talk about in a second, but this is the record that was produced from that GOP marketing meeting. Uh, the Republican National Committee knows nothing about this. It's never been known to history. One historian analyzed the history of that time period and knew about the meeting at Eisenhower's home, but said nothing ever came of it. Well, this came of it. It was a record sent out to the public called Mr. Lincoln's Party Today. That is, what is, is, what is the relevance of the party started? Not really started, but Lincoln being the first presidential candidate after Fremont in 1856. But is it relevant to the world of today, meaning the world of 1962? And there were prominent Republicans chosen to on that recording. Former President Eisenhower, who liked to be called General Eisenhower once he got in office and nothing else. His former Vice President, running for the governorship of California, Richard Nixon. The middle left, conservative Barry Goldwater from Arizona. In the middle right, Nelson Rockefeller, the liberal Republican governor of New York. And there, chosen to be the narrator of this brand new publicity record, is Ronald Reagan. He just became a Republican. And this clearly Despite with Eisenhower. This is the script in the 
basement of the archives in Abilene, and there are crossouts in pencil in Eisenhower's handwriting showing he wanted to propose a script modified. He added these words Good Republicans can and do have divergent individual beliefs. They're good Republicans who are conservative, middle of the road, um, or liberal. Basically, that the GOP has a wild thing. And that having narrator, conservative Ronald Reagan, clearly responded to Eisenhower. By the way, please remember my theme today is this brand new relationship, never known before in history, of Eisenhower and Reagan. Everybody knew about it. Attorney General Edwin Lee, Secretary of State George Schultz, prior historian, knew nothing about it. And they record all the, those uh, uh, four Republicans record their thoughts on individual freedom, small government, and having an inclusive, wide political tent. But let's hear a tiny little clip of these two voices that you know so well. Now we hear one walk into a serve this country all his adult life, crowding that service with two terms as President of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Thank you, Mr. Reagan. Well, flash forward, and we're going to go ahead two years. Harry Goldwater, the conservative from Arizona, is the Republican nominee for the presidency in the fall of 1964. This is a year after the JFK assassination. Poll numbers look great if you're Democrat Lyndon Johnson, but they look horrendous if you're Barry Goldwater. And a week before uh, Election Day, uh, Ronald Reagan, who at this point is still an actor, president of the Screen Actors Guild, but he also has been across the country in the 50s and early 60s because he's the host of General Electric Theater on Sunday nights and goes to many General Electric factories giving basically political talks. He's an accomplished public speaker. And the Goldwater campaign asks him to give a speech on national television. We know it as a time for choosing. If you've never heard it, please go to YouTube, watch and listen to it. It's amazing how relevant it is for today. Reaganites call it the speech because it launched his political career that night. One comment I'll bring to your attention. He said the West never really cared about the millions it trapped behind the Iron Curtain. And that very night, group of wealthy folks in Los Angeles said, you know, Goldwater's going to lose next week. And we in the future, here's an articulate, warm guy, Ronald Reagan, accomplished speaker, espousing themes of small government and individual freedom. We want him to enter politics. Maybe he'll be interested. And that very night, a group in Michigan forms the actual very first Reagan for President Club, and I go through all those details uh, in my book. But one other person is watching that TV show. And that's former President Eisenhower. He immediately calls his former Attorney General and says, what a fine speech. And his former special assistant, he says, what an excellent speech actor Ronald Reagan just gave. Well, uh, it was, in fact, a Johnson landslide. And it was not a unified party. Liberal Republicans did not embrace that wide political tent philosophy. And liberal Republicans like Nelson Rockefeller and Michigan Governor George Romney, the father of Nick, did not endorse the party nominee Goldwater. Reagan was livid. In a later speech, he called them traitors. Well, there was an intermediary friend who got Ike and Reagan together, and that's Freeman Gosden, a name likely you don't know, but way back when, in the 50s and 60s, he was the co-creator and co-star of Radio's Amos and Andy. David Eisenhower, Ike's grandson, recalled the Gosdens as amongst Ike's most treasured friends, and he became the critical intermediary. Six months after the Johnson landslide Goldwater lost, 
President Eisenhower, again, they like to be called General, gets a phone call uh, from Gosling. He says, uh, General, what do you think of the actor Ronald Reagan? He's thinking of entering politics. What advice can you give him? Well, the very next day, Dwight Eisenhower pens a very thoughtful, multi-page letter with specific points of advice that he wants Ronald Reagan to receive. Reagan will not only follow Ike's advice to the letter, Six months later, when he addresses California on TV and announces he is going to seek the nomination to be the GOP's governor, he actually uses some of these exact phrases. In this letter, the next day that Eisenhower wrote, he says that Reagan should make an unequivocal statement he's a Republican, that six months earlier he honorably supported the party, and that the GOP, in seeking common-sense solutions, can accommodate men who differ sharply on detail. I highlighted for a specific reason those words common sense, because in the very next section of Ike's letter, he uses it again, that Reagan should never cease to present himself as a Republican to bring common sense solutions to government. Of course, common sense starts with Thomas Paine during the American Revolution. However, Reagan says to himself, boy, Ike used it twice. Maybe I'll make a better candidate if I enter politics, which of course, over the next few months, he decides to. Well, Ronald Reagan becomes the party nominee in California for the governor, and immediately that late spring, he flies east to meet personally the man who had been mentoring him behind the scenes. And if you've ever been uh, to Gettysburg National Park to see the Civil War uh, aspect of it, please stop at the Eisenhower section because the Eisenhower summer home is there. Very interesting in the logbook that you'll see. Mamie Eisenhower made every single guest or even family member sign in and out every single time, including her grandchildren. And there on June 15, 1966, is the signature. It took a while for uh, me to get the archivist, but together we found it. Ronald Reagan signing in to see White Eisenhower. Now, they met four times. And for those of you who are golfers, know when you play golf, it's not for five minutes. You spend many hours together in the park, walking around, planning things, and you're going to hear specific things that they discuss. And just like those of you who are Stuart historians know John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, a torch is passed to a new generation, well, I think this photo should get equal claim because this is when the torch is passed from the man who defeated Nazi Germany, Dwight Eisenhower, the commander of the Allies, and two-term president and still at this point the most popular man in America, with the man who he is mentoring and who would become his protege, Ronald Reagan, who defeats communists. I think this should be the key passing of the torch. Well, if you were in California in 1966, you were driving on the freeways, you would see billboards with the smiling picture of Ronald Reagan with the words common sense solutions for California behind them. And at home, you might have received this record. Reagan has a track record now. It makes all back to the track. Uh, the earlier Lincoln record. Now this is another record. Ronald Reagan and the GOP send this out uh, to get votes. And it's again, common sense. He gets his campaign theme from President Eisenhower. And there's a lot more. In 1952, Ike called himself the citizen soldier. Reagan in 66 calls himself the citizen politician. And as he's running for president the first time over the next two years, he calls himself citizen governor. Specifically behind the scenes, Ike advises Reagan on polling, emphasized Northern California during this uh, 
including Florida as well. And two times when Ronald Reagan is falsely accused of being anti-Semitic, Eisenhower advises him on how specifically to fight those false charges. And Reagan, the accomplished speaker, is actually advised by Eisenhower behind the scenes how to deliver speeches on television and in a poignant letter, one of those that I evaluated uh, in Abilene at the Eisenhower archives, is a letter of thanks that Reagan sends. And the true origin, in my opinion, of Reagan Democrats is from the constant advice Ike gives Reagan, seek out independents, seek out Democrats. Democrats. It's not 1980 out of the clear blue where he gets support from Democrats. It's right And specifically going after um, minorities of Eisenhower and Reagan did not want to just see minority votes there's a campaign poster from that campaign going after Hispanic votes. And Ronald Reagan in 1966 gets almost 50% of the Hispanic vote. And there's the article in my <coughs> very first showing Reagan Democrats. Well, this theme of mentorship, which to my knowledge has never been known before, that a president who's left office is mentoring somebody else how to become a president and actually seeing him as a worthy successor is brand new to history. And I believe it came from football in, in, in no small measure. Here's Eisenhower at West Point on the football team on the left. At a game, I believe it was in 1912, he attempts to tackle legendary Jim Thorpe twice in one game. Ike doesn't succeed, but Ike injures his knee and can't play football ever again. He becomes the football and there's football player Ronald Reagan at Community College. I believe the coach-student relationship, being the older mentor, the younger learner, is very critical, as well as teamwork to achieve goals. Eisenhower famously was mentored by Fox Connor when they both served together in Panama. Even at the height of World War II, Ike still seeks the advice of his former mentor. And I believe that's what strengthened this, especially those four. Well, Ronald Reagan, he is campaigning against Pat Brown, the man who had four years earlier defeated Richard Nixon. Ronald Reagan wins by almost one million votes, and that's the letter, uh, excuse me, telegram of congratulations sent by Ike. Two weeks later, Reagan is still governor-elect. He hasn't assumed office. Dwight Eisenhower immediately starts looking ahead to 1968 in the presidency, and he offers, sends this letter to Ray Bliss, the Republican chairman offering to host a lunch for people Eisenhower feels would be worthy people to be considered by the GOP as their presidential nominee. This is Ike's order. Nixon, who we met, this former vice president. Uh, Romney, again, that's Mitt's dad, George, the governor of Michigan. Percy, a senator from Illinois. There's Ronald Reagan, smack in the middle of the list. I, I, I know it. Rockefeller, we met, and Hatfield, a senator from Oregon. Clearly, White Eisenhower had mentored novice politician, brand new to politics, Ronald Reagan, into now a potential president of the United States. And what did Ike actually think of seeing Reagan someday succeeding him in the Oval Office? Well, in June of 66, after that first private meeting in Gettysburg, they meet the press. Uh, there, Eisenhower certifies Reagan as presidential timber. Nine months later, after another of their private meetings, Ike is asked by the press, General Eisenhower, what will you do at next summer's GOP convention in Miami Beach if the GOP does actually nominate Ronald Reagan? 
and grabs the microphone and Ike says, I will enthusiastically endorse it. And Ike is privately urging Reagan to run as California's Republican side. Well, others thought, you know, maybe it's better if uh, Reagan runs as vice president and maybe a liberal Republican like Nelson Rockefeller. Ike didn't think anything of that idea. He wanted a, a team, a president and vice president have the same political philosophy. But Reagan, at many press conferences, asked, what will you do? Will you accept the role of vice president if you're asked? And if you remember from history, General Green that comes to Sherman, uh, when he was asked about the, the presidency, he said, uh, after this is 20 years after the Civil War, if nominated, I will not run. You remember that quote. Please listen to what Ronald Reagan says uh, when he's asked that similar question in 1967. Yeah, the question of this gets down to the Sherman statement. The answer is funny, but the critical point is on the golf course. So they discussed vice presidency, obviously the presidency, and then Well, that same time period, William F. Buckley, conservative columnist, he did a lot of different things. But one of the things he did is he hosted a nationally televised interview show called Firing Line. Some of you may have watched it. And he interviews Governor Reagan, uh, running for the presidency for the first time. And in it, he starts to attack the presidential president, <coughs> White Eisenhower. How come Ike didn't dismantle FDR's New Deal? Or maybe only at the end of his time did he start to try to dismantle the New Deal. And I think he fully expected conservative Reagan to agree with him. Start to attack. Now listen to what Reagan does. He comes to the defense of the man who had been mentored. It was Mr. Eisenhower's difficulty in leaving the Republican. Oh, yes. I think the very fact that, and this is overlooked a great deal, don't you think? The very fact that one of his most achievements came to 165 spending measures in his journey with us. He goes into a lot more, but again, he comes to Ike's defense. We're now going to get into the second part of my talk, and that's world affairs. Basically, we're going to start out with Vietnam. What's going on is President Lyndon Johnson placed American boots on the ground in Vietnam. There were American advisors, of course, there under Eisenhower and Kennedy, but it was Democrat Johnson who placed boots on the ground. And he actually brought in Eisenhower as a hidden advisor, I think because, and this is work of others, in case anything went wrong, Johnson could play Mike. Well, of course, Eisenhower had been the commander of D-Day, the world's largest you know, military invasion ever assembled. And he urged the same for Johnson, to have a massive initial show of force. Americans don't like drawn-out war, don't have a slow escalation. Johnson didn't listen at all in a quagmire of Vietnam after that. But Eisenhower did have specific suggestions. Hot pursuit. If enemy aircraft or troops flee over an adjacent border, you go after them. Don't stop the bombing. And just as Eisenhower succeeded 15 years earlier in stopping the fighting in Korea by threatening behind the scenes to use atomic weapons, he wanted Johnson to threaten to use them too. He also wanted the American Navy moved north, off the coast of North Vietnam, to threaten an amphibious invasion. He wanted the North Vietnamese quaking in their beds every night, wondering what America would do next. Johnson did none of that. Reagan only candidate in 1968 on either side who said, Johnson got us into the war, 
Johnson, President Johnson, give the troops the tools to win. If you don't, they just bring them back. And he learned that all from Dwight Eisenhower. It's now December of 66. Reagan still has not even assumed the office of governor, but Ike writes him, I hope we can talk more about world affairs in the future. Over the next year, back to atomic weapons, I still repeat what Ike said some time ago. One of our great mistakes in advance was in assuring the enemy we wouldn't lose them. The enemy still should be frightened that we might. The reporters of the era were horrified by this. They made this, oh, warmonger, warmonger. They missed the point completely. They wanted the threat. Historian Evan Thomas has written a whole book about Eisenhower's use of threats. They wanted not to tell uh, in advance what America would do. Uh, you think Ike, the commander of D-Day, as he's planning, sends a letter to Adolf Hitler what he is or isn't going to do? Of course not. And that's why I think uh, uh, had Eisenhower and Reagan been around uh, to see uh, uh, one president removes plans in Iraq and Afghanistan, telling them in advance when our troops would be withdrawn, I think Reagan and Eisenhower uh, would have been horrified. Well, it's now January 1968, and a lot of these events are having their 50th anniversary. On January 23rd, North Korea enters the Vietnam War, because in international waters, our intelligence ship, the Pueblo, is hijacked. The crew is imprisoned and tortured in North Vietnamese, in North Korea. Sound familiar from that Reagan movie? President Johnson didn't seem to make any decisions. Reagan was very angry and deeply ashamed of the mishandling of the Pueblo case. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, a week later, Americans turn on their TV and they hear something called the Tet Offensive. Those of you who may recall the term uh, may associate it with a major American military victory. Well, it was the exact opposite. It turns out it was a major American and South Vietnamese military triumph. But you wouldn't know that if you watched TV that night. I did. CBS's Walter Cronkite, most notoriously, uh, basically uh, cast it as a complete loss, which it wasn't at all. There was no alternative conservative media there to uh, counterbalance what was being said on national networks. And it handed the communists a tremendous psychological victory. Ronald Reagan, the voice you know so well, is now going to talk about the USS Pueblo, but it's going to do it within the context of the massive, the big change from Eisenhower's philosophy, we're going to rely on massive retaliation, no one can come close to us in strength, to what JFK instituted when he assumed office in 1961. He wanted smaller units, non-nuclear, non uh, as America's defense, and here was a perfect test case. What's going to happen for the USS Pueblo Listen to Ronald Reagan's analysis. He's going to begin by complaining of the failed Bay of Pigs, uh, but listen to his comments on the play. We were planning a seven-year run at the beginning of the Bay of Pigs, including the big humiliating effects of one of our ships and the kidnapping of 83 young Americans. The official explanation given to the inability of our Air Force in the Far East in 2004 was that is that all the fighters on alert in Korea are equipped only for nuclear retaliation. That's been the most persistent claim of this administration. As their claim against that we have moved at a cost of $500 billion over these last few years from a nuclear force to one that would avoid the threat of the bomb and give us a flexible response. And now, when a response is needed, we have no response at all. I guarantee none of you have heard the voice of Ronald Reagan discussing world affairs 15 years ago. 
Well, now we're going to go over specific things a reporter asks Raymond and what we can do. And he's going to go through a list um, and listen to his complaints about that escalation. He's going to say it's a specious argument. The escalations happen. But what took two years under Johnson and things been done the way I want it has a sudden surge. The war might have been won by now. We would not hear the term surge again for 45 years until General Petraeus moved into Iraq. Johnson sends a representative to Paris uh, for peace negotiations. That representative gets off at the airport in Paris and proudly tells the press, I've rented an apartment for a year. Reagan heard that. Reagan, the president of the Screen Actors Guild, who was a very tough negotiator with the studios, he was outraged. He said, that's not how you negotiate with communists, announce you're going to be there for a year. You give them a week, and if they're not serious, you escalate. And he's going to comment uh, on this, but he sees it all through Eisenhower and Korea. When I stated this last week about what should be done to the negotiating table, the reality that when it's murder, we marched by former President Eisenhower. The fact that when you sit down and negotiate with communists, we should keep in mind that the two years of negotiations in Korea, in which during that period of time, more than 20,000 Americans, <coughs> I think you have to recall President Eisenhower, I mean, he was a new president. Well, the end of that two-year period brought an end to the negotiations and settled the conflict by simply releasing the word that the United States was going to review its options with regard to weapons, theaters of operation, manner of fighting, and so on. Reagan also says to move the fleet off the coast of the north to force the enemy troops that are in the south right now to go protect their own homeland. Eisenhower and Reagan wanted fighting in north Vietnam. Not just destroying the cities of the South. Well, Reagan, candidate for the presidency, begins to expand his comments via Eisenhower's uh, mentoring beyond Vietnam to other areas of world affairs. Now he talks about Berlin, Soviet movements during the Eisenhower era were gotten rid of without even more American troops, just by Ike's resolution. In one of the toughest speeches during that first presidential campaign, that Reagan gave against the Kennedy-Johnson administration has a few parts to it. Uh, you're going to hear him actually talk about 
having an anti-ballistic missile shield for America. This is in 1968, and I go into a lot of detail in my book that the true origins of the missile defense shield we have today, in fact, it's in today's headlines. Poland bought $450 million worth of anti-missile defense from us today, and it's all due to Ronald Reagan. And this is the exact point where it begins. And he's also going to talk about the Soviet Union, how they constantly just break treaties. He almost calls the Soviet Union the evil empire that he will do as president. Not quite, because this is earlier in his career. And then he'll get into all America's military strength that had been squandered after Eisenhower left office. Where did we take a different course in recent days with smiles in the Kremlin? They've been warm and friendly, but I wonder if they're smiling or if they're laughing at us. We're now ready to talk a nuclear weapon treaty that will stop us from protecting our cities as theirs are already protected by an anti-ballistic missile program. Russian rockets are killing our young men and raining down on the innocent civilians of Saigon. But our national leaders indicate that they believe we can enter into a treaty, in spite of the fact that this other nation has already broken more than 50 treaties with this country and has indicated that it believes it is its right to break a treaty anytime it suits its national purpose. Lenin said to tie one's hands in advance and to openly tell an enemy who is presently armed that we will fight him and win is stupidity. The great society has made a big point of its supposed freshness of outlook, its zest for innovation and its gift for invention. The truth is the great society has brought forth little that is great and nothing that is new. Practically all of the truly commanding weapon systems now in American inventory were developed or brought forward during the Eisenhower year. The ballistic rockets with their numerous variations, a development driven to completion by a brilliant young missile man of a new breed, General Bernard Schreiber, the miniaturized thermonuclear warhead made possible by the inventive genius of Dr. Edward Keller. The supersonic jet strike force conceived and made operable by General Curtis LeMay, the father of the Strategic Air Command and one of the greatest air geniuses of all times. The entire Polaris concept, coupling missile and weapon technology with a nuclear submarine, born of Admiral Hyman Rickover's persistence. But where are these men with their drive and determination now? Having pulled America's chestnuts out of the fire in the 50s, what do they have to say about American technology in this decade? Well, a month before the GOP convention that Reagan will not become the nominee at, a reporter asks him, it's a little garbled, what do you think of that term common sense that Eisenhower has used? Could that be a good campaign theme? Listen to Reagan's response that a year and a half ago when he won the governorship, this was the inspiration, and that's what he used. He got it from Ike. As long as the question about the bill, I'd like to generalize it. When you said we were going to party in common sense, you think so. That would be a great slogan. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I used it to show that I can't in California here in Hanford years ago. I agree with Matter of fact, he was the inspiration for it. was the inspiration for it. The only time in history that Reagan acknowledges Ike is this. Well, as I go over in my book, President Reagan really was there all along back in the 60s. I have an op-ed coming out in really a few days because on April 4th, 1968, that morning, later in the day, tragedy occurs. Martin Luther King is assassinated. But that morning in Sacramento, he signs his first official act, 
pushing for freedom in Eastern Europe. He signs a proclamation calling for Croatian freedom. He then flies east and hears about modernization. Tear down the Berlin Wall. Well, he didn't get that idea out of the clear blue in 1986, calling Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. His actual first public call was during this campaign. On May 15, 1967, he debates Robert Kennedy on Vietnam. If you've never watched it, know nothing about it, go to YouTube and watch it. It's fascinating. At the end of that debate, the subject matter changes a little. And Reagan says, I want the Soviet Union to knock down the Berlin Wall. That's his first public push for it, not in 1986. And two other times during his first presidential campaign, he says it again. He's warned, uh, uh, basically discusses with Eisenhower that the best way to defeat the Soviets is to match a strong American economy and a strong American military. And of course, as president, that's what he achieves. In 67 was the Six-Day War that Israel stuns the world and wins. And Reagan at the time says to Lyndon Johnson, don't try to remain neutral. Side with Israel, our natural ally of democracy in the Middle East. And you don't go to the UN to seek geopolitical solutions to major crises. The UN, with all the power given to tiny little countries, is not structured right. And he learned the mishandling of the Pueblo. He learned how to deal correctly with hostage crises. I go in my book, if you remember the Achille Lauro incident, President Reagan is faced with Palestinian hijackers who hijack a cruise ship in the Mediterranean. Poor elderly New Yorker Leon Klinghoffer in a wheelchair is thrown overboard by them, and they escape in a jet. Ronald Reagan acts quickly and decisively, learning from Lyndon Johnson and the Pueblo what not to do. And he sends American interceptor jets after them. He's going to force them down to land in Italy. When the Italian premier says, I don't want them here, Reagan said, oh, yes, we're going to land there, and forces them down. Unfortunately, when they're turned over to the Italian authorities, the Palestinians are let go. But Ronald Reagan learned how to deal with hostage crises from the events at this time period. And now I'm going to get into the last portion of my talk, which is basically from the epilogue of my book. My book ends at that Republican convention when Nixon becomes the nominee. But in my epilogue, I trace a number of things, one of which is the continuing influence of Dwight Eisenhower during Reagan's presidential years. Well, the third time Reagan seeks the presidency, the one he finally wins at, is the late 1970s and during the 80 election. One of the hot-button topics of that era is whether America should turn the Panama Canal back to Panama. Reagan is against it. Uh, he's asked to comment on it in a debate and listen to his answer. This is nine uh, years after Ike died. Who first was engaged in uh, the problems in Panama? President Eisenhower. Uh, President Eisenhower told me of the idea that he had for the treaties that was far different from anything that is contained in these treaties. As a matter of fact, he was toying with a very interesting idea of forming an international corporation of shipping nations, all the nations of the world, a quasi-corporation to own both the Suez and the Panama Canal, and thus with all participating and all using those canals, uh, there would be no possibility of one uh, jumping the traces. He told me that in a golf cart, which was a pretty good place to hear. Think of all the mentoring that Ike did of Reagan in those four golf cart meetings. Vice presidency, presidency, uh, Vietnam, Korea, how to defeat communism. And as obscure a topic as Panama, you know, there's probably a lot more unknown to history that they discussed, but that's where the torch is being passed. 
truly to the next generation. And during that last campaign, a reporter asks candidate Reagan, the Governor Reagan, former Governor Reagan, who's your favorite president? And he said, well, the obvious choices are Washington or Lincoln. But he says, you know, Mr. Reporter, people forget about Ike. He was a darn good manager. Those were the last prosperous years we've known. And remember, Mr. Reporter, Komoi and Matsu, Ike had said they'll have to climb over the Seventh Fleet. Well, the Red Chinese never did. There was no war, and to this day, Komoi and Matsu remain the truth. In fact, Eisenhower clearly is Reagan's hero. Michael Beaver, one of his assistants, remembered that there was a photo of Reagan and Ike in every office that the two shared. Peter Robinson, the second name down there, is the actual Reagan speechwriter who wrote, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He and I were chatting about my brand new findings on Eisenhower being the mentor of Reagan, which he knew nothing about also. And he says, you know, Gene, that explains something. I've been many times over the years at the Reagan home in Pacific Palisades and on their family piano. Every single photo was of the family, with one exception. There's a photo of Ike. I never knew why. Now I do. And in Reagan's Oval Office desk is a photo of Ike in the private study that Reagan had. It was a bust in the cabinet room is a towering portrait of General Eisenhower. Well, as you recall, likely Eisenhower leaves office and he gives his farewell address, the military-industrial complex speech. You know it from that, but one of the things he says is peace through strength. The vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. President Reagan loved that quote. He cited it very, very frequently as president. And as you see, as people in history know, he gave his speeches via index cards. He never used a teleprompter. Other historians before me said, Ronald Reagan as president's role model was Franklin Roosevelt. I didn't find that at all in my history. So what I did is the search engine at the Reagan Library keeps track of every single public utterance or written comment that the president made, be it press conference, proclamation, anything he officially did. And I searched how many times during those eight years did President Reagan cite a predecessor president? Well, a hero to Reagan was Lincoln, but he cited him about a hundred times. Teddy Roosevelt was a hero. He has a bust of Roosevelt in his office, too. But he only cited him uh, 25 times in eight years. FDR, who these other historians claim was a role model, I don't have his number there, but it's only 56 times. The prior president who President Reagan cites the most publicly is Dwight David Eisenhower. Well, now we're going to go to December 8th, 1983. To the day, this is the 30th anniversary of Ike's Adams for Peace speech. Right now, President Reagan is negotiating nuclear arms reductions. Remember, that's what Ike had tried to achieve with that 1953 speech. If this is before Gorbachev, it's with Andropov, the Soviet leader. Andropov cancels the meeting, leaves. Reagan meets the press, he's dejected, and they, the press discusses with Reagan this 30th anniversary. Reagan says, my administration endorses Ike's view completely. This is what we're dedicated to doing. President Reagan thus made achieving President Eisenhower's unfulfilled goals of getting rid of nuclear weapons his own official policy. Six months later, it's the 40th anniversary of D-Day. Ronald Reagan is the first American president to fly to Normandy to commemorate that. And of course, whose troops is he honoring? Ike's. He says, I will forever stand for Ike's D-Day veterans. They're my heroes like they were his. Well, as he's speaking, aircraft fly over him. They are aircraft from what is offshore, just off the coast of Normandy, 
was the American aircraft carrier USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. Reagan then goes into Marine One and flies over the aircraft carrier saying, the heroic operation planned and commanded by Ike D-Day still inspires heroic efforts. And in fact, the crew on the aircraft carrier goes into formation, spelling out I-K-E. Reagan grabs the mic, which is of course broadcast below. I like Ike, I love Ike. During the Reagan administration are many anniversaries and commemorations at the 25 and 30 year point of programs begun by Dwight Eisenhower. One of the most important in history is a secret program after the U-2 spy plane incident where secret satellites were launched by America to photograph the Soviet Union and other enemies. It was called the Corona Project, and it had its 25th anniversary while Reagan was president. And he goes to the CIA and says, I reaffirm Ike's conclusion that America's, Americans don't have to live in fear about what our enemies are doing because we have overhead reconnaissance. We know what's going on. Well, now it's Ronald Reagan's turn to leave the White House in January of 1989. Listen to a little snippet of his farewell address. He's going to talk about the Reagan Revolution, which he appreciates the term. But he went into politics. He's rediscovering the Eisenhower years. You'll hear him use the term citizen politician, common sense, that he goes into politics in the 60s to bring small government to people. And he honors still Ike's troops at D-Day and in Korea. They called it the Reagan Revolution. You accept that. But for me, it always seemed more like the great rediscovery, the rediscovery of our values and our common sense. Common sense told us that when we put a big tax on something, the people will produce less of it. So we cut the people's tax rates, and the people produce more than ever before. Common sense also told us that to preserve the peace, we have to become strong again after years of weakness and confusion. So we rebuild our defenses. Not only have the superpowers actually begun to reduce their stockpiles of nuclear weapons, and hope for a little more progress as well. I never meant to go into politics. It wasn't my intention when I was young. But I was raised to believe we had a clean way for the blessings we still have. But back in the 1960s when that began, it seemed to me that we'd begun reversing the order. But through more and more rules and regulations and confiscatory taxes, the government was taking more of our money, more of our options, and more of our food. I went into politics in part to put up my hand and say, stop. I was a citizen politician, and it seemed the right thing for a city to be. And the father down the street, who fought in Korea, for the family who lost some of their answer. So we've got to teach history. We've got to teach history. It's an important quote that very few people realize Reagan made in that farewell address. Uh, and here is that official cabinet portraiture, President Reagan, Vice President Bush, the whole cabinet. And they're looking down, I'm sure with pride, on the man he mentored from a novice politician now into a, a hugely successful president of the United States who brings back a roaring economy and defeats communism without firing a single shot is his mentor, General Dwight Eisenhower. Thank you.